This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new mirage was unveiled to the world. The strip had been reinvented. The architect of all of it was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn. The naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own Treasure Island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this episode of Vegas Fed, a command post is established, an amazing breakthrough in the case by a veteran FBI agent, and authorities follow leads in Sacramento and Las Vegas, which point to Newport Beach, California. I'd been in the criminal law field in one way or another for about 11 years by the time I was assigned the Wynn kidnapping case, as it would forever be called. Typically, a criminal case is referred to by the defendant's name, Manson, O.J., Bundy. The notoriety of the victim in this case overshadowed all else. Moreover, we had no clue as to the identity of the perpetrators yet, and barely anyone noticed or cared that the charges were actually conspiracy, extortion, and money laundering, not kidnapping. I had been a cop in Suffolk County, Long Island, and then an assistant district attorney there. I come from a family of policemen, including my father, my grandfather, brothers, cousins, uncles. I was a prosecutor with a career case, and the FBI agent assigned was a white-haired leprechaun of a guy named Mike Growney. Mike was an FBI veteran and an attorney with a gift of blonde that I always said could get him elected to public office. Mike and I had worked together before, a seasoned agent on the verge of retiring and a hard-charging rookie AUSA. We generally operated in different gears, and this sometimes caused a bit of tension between us. Plus, we were a couple of Irishmen who weren't shy about sharing our opinions. This dynamic would be a continuing theme throughout the course of the case. A briefing was scheduled for 3 o'clock that afternoon at the FBI. When I arrived, I felt like I was on the set of a movie. The Las Vegas resident office of the FBI at that time was a bland four-story structure. Typical government building on Charleston Boulevard right off the Strip, not very nice section of Las Vegas. The building gave one the impression it could keep a secret. It was not visitor-friendly. You would hit a button next to an industrial-type plain metal door painted black, all the while you were being tracked by a looming video camera. This was at a time when not every home was equipped with several video cameras. When granted entry, you'd walk into a small vestibule. The only option besides going back out the door was to step onto an elevator which bypassed the second floor to deposit you on the third. You then checked in with the receptionist, comfortably situated behind a thick pane of bulletproof glass. 
You were issued an ID badge, and you waited for an agent to escort you into the working areas of the place. Security has gotten immensely tighter since 9-11, and the old FBI building is another relic of Las Vegas' past. On the way into the building, I passed several reporters and camera crews, all clamoring for something to report on the case. They obviously knew about the 3 o'clock meeting. Maybe the building could keep a secret, but apparently not all of its occupants could. I was brought to the command post, a large conference room, adjoining the office of Special Agent in Charge Randy Prilliman. The walls were equipped with long white eraser boards and numerous felt pens. Photo portraits ensured that former FBI directors, including J. Edgar Hoover, would be keeping an eye on things. There were perhaps 25 agents and Metro Police Department personnel seated at or around the table. Among them were Prilliman, a tall southerner with a slow drawl and an intense gaze, and John L. Sullivan, chief of detectives, an old-timer who looked as tough as his name suggested. The blackboards were covered with information about the Wynn family and people close to them. All relevant events were outlined and updated to the minute. Important times punctuated the summary of known facts. The boards were constantly annotated with underlining question marks and other entries. Before I had had time to digest the jumble of information staring me in the face, the briefing began. Facts were flying, an impressive display of highly organized mayhem. FBI agents, mostly from Squad 5, the reactive squad, and Metro people, were reporting the results of their efforts to complete very specific tasks assigned to them. Lieutenant Mike Hawkins, from robbery, jumped into the fray with his square jaw and gravel voice. I took it all in, asking one or two questions of no great consequence. This was just what I had signed up for. Despite my reputation for being a competent, confident prosecutor, a former cop who'd been around the block, this scene really got my attention. I had a feeling that I was going to have to elevate my game to a new level to pull this off. I am an aficionado of good police work, a fan. This probably has a lot to do with my family and the fact that I've been a policeman, albeit for a relatively short two years. I'm always a bit uncomfortable when someone refers to me as an ex-cop, like I didn't pay sufficient dues to merit the title. During that time, however, I worked in the central isolate Brentwood area of the 3rd Precinct in Suffolk County, Long Island, a place which has become a killing field for MS-13 in recent times, and I work with a very active group of cops. In that two years, I earned five commendations, made about a hundred arrests, was involved in one shootout, and was sued for brutality by the brother of the president of the Pagan's Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. My partner, mentor, and big brother during those two years was street cop par excellence, Kenny Hamilton. Kenny, who is gone now, was one of the most highly decorated working cops in Suffolk County. Anyone who worked with him will tell you that Kenny possessed instincts which were absolutely uncanny. He was also an unparalleled teller of police stories, sort of an oral Joseph Wamba. After observing the master at work on a multitude of cases, I came to appreciate the art of policing. I learned more from Kenny in two years than I had in three years of law school. As I said, my fascination with the adventures of accomplished police professionals is due in large part to my family. Both my father and grandfather were New York PD captains for a collective 60 years. The rank of captain is as high as a cop can go by attaining high scores on objectively graded civil service exams. That's how patrolmen make sergeant, sergeants make lieutenant, and lieutenants make captain. 
After that, it's not what you know, but who you know, and who you don't piss off. I'm the first to admit that I'm not unbiased about law enforcement. Perhaps paradoxically, high expectations tend to make one a hard marker, subject to frequent disappointment when those expectations are not met. The breakthrough of the wind case, however, was pure genius. 24 hours into it, we had nothing. The press was relentlessly pursuing any tidbit it could pick up from any source. As far as the Vegas media was concerned, this case was the only newsworthy event in the world. But hundreds of leads were being pursued. Scores of potential witnesses were being interviewed. Grand jury subpoenas for every type of information which might prove helpful at all were submitted for my approval as fast as I could keep up with them. Most of the agents in the Las Vegas field office of the FBI were dedicated in one way or other to the effort to solve this most high-profile case, thus far to no avail. Then, finally, the inquiring mind of a veteran FBI agent with 20 years' experience in unraveling crimes broke the stalemate. George Leifert had been assigned not long after midnight of the 26th to establish the command post and coordinate the joint FBI Metro pursuit of the kidnappers. George's investigative skills were built on a solid foundation of street knowledge gained as a cop in Buffalo, New York. George was tall, well-spoken, well-groomed, and graying. He looked like a fed. George said if he was going to grab somebody out of Spanish trails, Kevin Wynn's upscale guard-gated community, he'd want to look out nearby to spot any trouble. He said he'd want him waiting somewhere with a good view of the traffic coming to the area, and he'd want the ability to contact him. Bear in mind that in 1993, cell phones were not standard equipment for everyone over the age of eight as they are today. Few people had them, and payphones were not yet relics of antiquity. George knew of a Carl's Jr. hamburger joint just down the road at the last major intersection before the entry into Spanish trails. It was the closest location which had a public telephone. George figured maybe, just maybe, a lookout was stationed there. And who knew? Maybe he had used the payphone. George proceeded to obtain the records of the Carl's Jr. payphone. On his hunch, the numbers called were compared to all the calls made from the four payphones at the 7-Eleven next to Sonny's, the drop point for the ransom. Talk about intuition. There were a number of calls made from the 7-Eleven phones to a telephone number in Sacramento, California. This was the only non-local number called at times relevant to the kidnapping. And that same Sacramento number had been called several times from Carl's Jr. What were the odds? We would learn that the subscriber was named McBride, and the residence to which the number was assigned was an apartment in a shabby section of the city. Interestingly, each Sacramento call from the Carl's Jr. phone lasted several minutes and was preceded by a brief call from a local number, a cellular telephone. George checked out the cell phone. This piece of 1993 state-of-the-art technology had been purchased, and the number activated only a month earlier by a guy named Ray Cuddy. George Leifert had previously imparted to me one of his pearls of cop wisdom, learned the old-fashioned way, in the context of another case of his. In well-honed simplicity, he informed me that I don't believe in coincidences. In response to my expressions of admiration, he would later add, in his matter-of-fact manner, that his approach to solving this case had been simple. I just tried to think like a kidnapper. Not one, but several calls to the same Sacramento phone number from both the 7-Eleven phones next to the ransom drop and the Carl's Jr. phone near Spanish Trails invoked the logic of his axiom. This was no coincidence. The temporal relationship between the short calls to Carl's Jr. from a local cell phone, followed by long calls to Sacramento, suggested that the person at Carl's Jr. was being updated by the person with the cell phone. After each status check, a lengthy call to Sacramento occurred, perhaps to another co-conspirator or maybe just to pass the time. There were also calls from the 7-Eleven phones to the Mirage. 
In my mind's eye, I could already picture the telephone link chart we used at trial. Great visual evidence tying all these calls together for a jury. George's hunch was confirmed when not long after the telephone results were in, a young agent named Joe Brent arrived at the command post. He was armed with a list of possible suspects based on records he had obtained from Las Vegas McCarran International Airport. The logs reflected the registered owners of vehicles which had arrived or departed the McCarran parking facility at relevant times. While reading the names, Joe was interrupted by the attention one such name generated. It was high five time. The name was Ray Cuddy. His car had been in the oversized parking lot between 11.30 and midnight. Investigation revealed he was on the short side, fit, and fair-skinned. Another airport record was obtained. It was the parking ticket that the driver of Kevin's Black Audi had taken from the machine. For about four minutes, he drove up, around, back down, unable to find a parking spot. So he exited the facility. He returned the ticket to Val Gary, the parking attendant in the booth, who told him no charge. The driver of Kevin's Beyondo was the only person in the world to have ever touched it until he handed it to Gowie. It was hand-carried by an agent to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. that night. We were no longer paddling upstream without a paddle. On a hunch, really more than that, deductive reasoning worthy of Sherlock Holmes, George Lyford had broken the frustrating stalemate. We had our guy, and we were hot on the trail of promising leads in Sacramento. In breaking the case wide open... George had demonstrated a superlative level of police excellence, worthy of an equal honor. He was now a member of an elite club, joining Kenny Hamilton and a few others in my personal police hall of fame. By the next day, FBI agents in Sacramento were pounding the pavement in search of the subjects who had been clearly in touch with the kidnappers in Vegas via Mary McBride's phone number. The Sacramento McBride sisters were tough pieces of work. The younger two, Mary and Glenda, had criminal records and an older sister doing time. They were quickly run down and interviewed by Sacramento FBI agents, led by a hard-charging SWAT team member, Chuck Riley. They were also consummate liars. Although they both acknowledged being present in Mary's apartment the night the calls were made from Vegas, each denied having received the calls or even knowing anyone who might have been in Vegas at the time. Coincidentally, service to Mary's phone had been cut off that morning. An older half-sister, Julie, who lived nearby, was interviewed independently and said otherwise. It seemed that Mary and Glenda had in fact received a few calls from Vegas, specifically from their new boyfriends who were there on business. Jake Sherwood from Gary, Indiana, and his cousin, Anthony Watkins, of Sacramento. Both were gang members, and at ages 21 and 19, respectively, had already been well on their way to trouble. But this time, they were in over their heads. This despite their claim that they were legit, and being mentored by a white dude, who Jake had worked with at a local gas station. His name was Ray, and they called him Uncle Ray. Jake was burly, and sported a gangster disciple nation tattoo. Anthony was slight, and carried a bullet in his head. Riley and his colleagues re-interviewed Mary and Glenda again on July 30th and served them with subpoenas to appear before the federal grand jury in Las Vegas on August 4th. As is typical, a few grains of truth came out of their mouths on the second shot, but not the whole truth. They admitted to lying to the FBI several times during the first interview, but they were clearly going to make us do this the hard way. 
What neither Julie nor the FBI knew yet was that Uncle Ray, Ray Marion Cuddy, was a desperate man. Until recently, he had harbored hopes for a bright future. In his late 40s, gray-haired and fit, he was a partner and manager of the sports club, an upscale Newport Beach, California gym. He drove expensive cars, albeit least, and projected an image of success, something he craved beyond description. It was not to be. First, a falling out with his partners resulted in him losing his job at the sports club. Then he won a judgment for almost $500,000 in a civil suit. He was finally on the verge of living his dream, one of the Newport Beach elite, no longer merely a servant. Even if the sports club hadn't panned out, he'd get where he was going via his winnings from the lawsuit. Then, disaster. The money judgment was reduced by the trial judge. Then an appellate court reversed the case, throwing out the judgment completely. First, his career with the sports club went in the toilet, then victory in court was pulled out from under him. Once again, Ray Cuddy had nothing, and once again, he was a nobody. On July 26, 1993, Ray Cuddy was driving a Volkswagen, and he had sneakers on his feet. But when the sun came up on July 27th, a Tuesday, Ray Cuddy must have looked in the mirror and started whistling that song, What a Difference a Day Makes. Because he was living in a fancy, expensive hotel suite in Newport Beach. And he was in possession of almost a million dollars in cash. He was never going to have to demean himself by pumping gas again. In fact, he was never going to have to work another day in his life. Life before the sports club had been a series of frustrations. He even worked as, among other things, a carny, that is a circus employee. Now the fates had plunged him right back to rock bottom. Before he moved to Vegas a few months earlier, his most recent job had been pumping gas in Sacramento. A tough kid named Jake worked with him at a 76 station. This destiny was unacceptable to Ray Cuddy. One way or another, his grandiose ambitions would be realized. He'd come up with an idea, an outrageous plan that would take a lot of nerve. To carry it out, he could use someone like Jake. Back in Las Vegas, things were moving fast. Ray Cuddy, it turns out, had recently left Sacramento and taken a squalid apartment in Vegas where he lived with his unemployed 22-year-old son. He worked for a few weeks for an old friend, Jimmy Keziah, who owned American Printing downtown near Fremont Street. Then they had a falling out. Cuddy owed him thousands, as he did another old friend, Spiro Kimball. Both Keziah and Kimball had put Cuddy up several times over the past few tough years. Soon the job with Keziah was history, just like all the others. Parenthetically, Keziah was a member of the Spanish Trails Country Club, where Kevin Wynn lived. Jason Cuddy was quickly located at their apartment and a search warrant executed. Jason seemed like a good kid and he was cooperative. Cuddy had recently announced to his son that things were happening, and if things worked out, it would be very, very good. So good, he'd be purchasing a Ferrari Testarossa. But if things didn't work out, they'd be very, very bad. And if things went really bad, Jason might have to go to Iowa to live with his mother. Moreover, Cuddy said it would be better for him if his son knew nothing about what his father was up to. The kid told the agents that his father had been talking to a young black guy named Jake from Sacramento, and just last week he had flown Jake and someone named Anthony to Vegas. He then pointed to a Southwest Airlines ticket stub in the name of Sherwood on the coffee table, which was the only way he knew his last name. Among other things recovered during a search of the apartment was a pass to Spanish trails. He also disclosed that his father owned a 357 Magnum. Jason also related that Ray Cuddy had shown up at the apartment at around midnight on the night of July 26th and excitedly told his son that things had gone well. He then gave him five crisp $100 bills and said he was heading back to Newport Beach to repay Spiro the $30,000 he owed him. At this very moment, Ray Cuddy 
was en route to his rightful destiny. Now that we were on to Cuddy, decisions had to be made. Some agents wanted to arrest him right away. I urged them to give him some rope. Let's locate him, surveil him, and see if he doesn't lead us to the $1.45 million. That would be pretty good courtroom evidence, I urged, don't you think? Clearly, Cuddy was our man. But although we were on to Jake and Anthony, they weren't in the bag yet, and we actually had no idea where they might be, maybe with Cuddy. The FBI's main concern was that he might take off, maybe to Mexico. My somewhat cavalier response was, well, don't let that happen. You're the FBI. If it looks like he's going to take off, pop him. There's also some concern that if L.A. agents got involved, which they would have to if we were to follow him around their backyard for several days, a turf battle might ensue. This is not an unrealistic concern. When a big arrest looms, cops, and especially a certain PR-obsessed agency, sometimes become jackals. They will obstruct, even sabotage other agencies, and on occasion, even their brethren from other districts. To his credit, SAC Prilliman took the bull by the horns and, notwithstanding the hour, called the SAC for Los Angeles at home. They're obviously acquainted. A gentleman's agreement regarding Cuddy was reached, and all concerns were laid. We would give Ray Cuddy the opportunity to strengthen our case against him by his own actions. And on the next episode of Vegas Fed, Cuddy's fate is sealed in Newport Beach. Perjury indictments fly in Vegas, resulting in new government witnesses and an absolutely devastating piece of evidence against Sherwood is developed. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020, Tom O'Connell.